Last week in our teaching, we said that to follow Jesus, there would be things that we would need to unlearn, ways of thinking, acting, and being that would need to be reset. Why? Well, because Jesus is irreligious. And maybe not what you'd expect a pastor to say, but as far as religious leaders go, Jesus was terrible. I mean, if you're looking for religiosity, Jesus probably isn't your guy. Well, that's okay, you say, because I'm not religious. Or are you? Now, if religious means cathedrals and choirs and, or robes and rituals, then you're probably right that you're not that religious. I mean, come on, you're at church right now and you're also eating bacon in your PJs, so we totally get that you're not capital R religious. But what if we defined religiosity a little differently? What if religion was your controlling story, as David Dark calls it? That thing that we lean on to tell us that we're okay or that we matter, or that thing that justifies climbing that ladder a little higher in pursuit of the wholeness that we're convinced is at the top of it? What if your religion is the thing that you do that gives you your sense of value or belonging? It could be your job, your hobby, your family, your investments, your education, but it's that thing that you do that justifies your life to your loved ones or your friends, your neighbors, or maybe even yourself. That thing that you do. In the Bible, in Mark's gospel in chapter two, we get this story about Jesus. It goes like this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, child, like literally he says, child, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, a good test about whether you're suffering from a bout of religiosity is how you react when someone breaks the rules that you're all playing by. So imagine you're working hard and someone else gets lucky and they're promoted above you. Or you save hard and someone else just inherits a fortune. Or, you know, that skinny guy in the gym who gets to eat whatever he wants. But if you really want to get to the heart of what upsets our religious thinking, then you need to talk about forgiveness. Nothing upsets us more than someone getting away with it. It offends us. It just doesn't seem right. But Jesus, he was all about forgiveness. 
Which brings us to this moment in the story. A Jesus covered in the dust of his own ceiling. A man lying in the middle of his living room. And the question in the air, what gives him the right to do this? Religiosity is obsessed, and I mean obsessed, with earning its own way. Religion is like that friend who never lets you pay his part of the bill or accepts help without paying you back in some sort of way. Because religious thinking is essentially motivated by the same question. What do I have to do to earn the status or value or worth that I'm looking for? In some ways, it's essentially karma. That I will do the good things and then as a result, I'll earn good things. And forgiveness screws that all up. In fact, Jesus screws that all up. See, because we're conditioned as religious thinkers to see our actions as improving us towards a goal. If I work enough, try enough, pray enough, then I'll get to the right place with my God, whatever your God happens to be. But then we meet this man and a dusty Jesus. The man has done precisely nothing. He has arrived in this situation completely helpless. And yet, despite that, Jesus forgives him. And all the religious people in the room say, amen, except they don't. You see, the problem with thinking that you have to earn your way to everything is that it places the focus upon us. So when it then comes to forgiveness, the focus remains on us. And we ask questions like, well, does he deserve it? Or why should she get let off? Or what have they done to be forgiven? But the way to understand Jesus' scandalous take on forgiveness is different. While religion focuses on the receiver, grace focuses on the giver. To understand Jesus' brand forgiveness, you don't look at me, you look at Jesus. I will always look undeserving. I will always be undeserving. It's just that Jesus doesn't care about that. Hey, kid, your sins are forgiven. Well, wait, there's another level here. If forgiveness can't be earned, if it's not a bar that we've got to reach, but rather it's a gift, then forgiveness isn't exclusive. Forgiveness is for everyone. Ah, you know, but only God can forgive sins, the people standing by watch. Only God can forgive sins. By the way, that's really funny if you think about who they're saying that to. But the comfort of our religiosity is that we get ourselves into a mindset where we know who deserves it and who doesn't. Forgiveness becomes exclusive. And just, by the way, pause for a moment and realize this. We don't know anything about this man. We don't know what he did. We don't know what he's done. And we don't know what he will do. But religiosity makes us cold and unforgiving. There's a poor man lying in need in the middle of the floor and the religious people in the room are trying to have a theological conversation, (laughs) but they're teachers of the law. It's what they do and they want to complain about the process. They want to talk about the heresy. They want to talk about being religiously right. And do you see it? Like you can take scripture. You can hold up the Bible and claim to be defending God. You can say all of the right things but be completely and utterly wrong. As the prophets of the Old Testament always said, there is no more pressing theological issue than care for the oppressed, the downtrodden, and the marginalized. So Jesus' brand forgiveness rages against the machine of ought and owed and required because Jesus brings good news. 
Good news of forgiveness. Forgiveness for the oppressed. Forgiveness for the oppressor. Wait, what? For the oppressor? Well, here again, you see the scandal of the irreligious Jesus. It goes even deeper than we might imagine. See, first he forgives for free. Then he forgives the poor man, and that gives us evidence that he's willing to forgive everyone. But depending on who you are, you might need a different type of forgiveness. Richard Viodas frames it like this. He says, the gospel is good news for the oppressed and the oppressor, for the powerless and the powerful, both liberated but in different ways. And the key here is to understand this idea of different ways. Because you know, forgiveness, forgiveness isn't saying, eh, it's all okay, or eh, what you did wasn't really that bad, or hey, it's not a problem, don't worry about it. Forgiveness isn't erasing the markers of right and wrong. So some people are going to need different types of forgiveness because they're in a different place, doing different things from a different perspective. In this story, Jesus is, the, is at the beginning of a ministry journey that's going to show us that God is opposed to every wrong, every wrong. It's also a story of God's triumph over what is wrong, but it's also a story of God liberating us from the wrong ways of dealing with what is wrong. And that's where the scandal becomes obvious to us. Because Jesus will offer forgiveness to the broken, the mess, the downtrodden, the made the wrong choice every single time people. But he's also gonna offer forgiveness to the proud, the self-righteous, the religious but it's a different type of forgiveness. It might be forgiveness for the ignorance, the ruthlessness, the lack of concern. Or maybe we just need forgiveness from all the time we wasted trying to earn our forgiveness and prove that we were worth it. Which is to say that forgiveness plays havoc with our pride. It's, you know, it's a good feeling having that thing on that person or having them owe me a little bit. I'll be honest, I like the view from my high horse where I can wait for Mr. Wrong to come to me and beg for repentance. And I know that holding a grudge is, as they say, like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. But be honest with me for a second, that poison tastes good. Yet frustratingly, Jesus' whole mode of life is an active demonstration of forgiveness. Think about it. If Jesus is, as we say, well, well, God, then everything he meets, everyone he meets has need of forgiveness from him and has sinned against him. Like Jesus is annoyingly going to forgive the very people who execute him even while they're midway through that process. Heck, he's even forgiving this guy lying on the floor after his friends just caved in his roof. I mean, have you ever tried to find a roofer on a Saturday in Capernaum? So forgiveness allows all of us to hear the same voice of Jesus. Kid, your sins are forgiven. And that's good news. If you're oppressed and marginalized, this forgiveness lifts you up from the burden of inferiority. But if you're the oppressor, even accidentally so, this forgiveness rescues you from the destructive illusion of superiority. Okay then, says Jesus, let's talk about forgiveness. But let's talk about it this way. What's easier, forgiving or telling the man to walk? And on one level, like this is like, 
obvious. Uh, like, I'm sure there's an equation or a formula for this somewhere that we can work this out. But let's take a brief side note and point this out. Many of these early stories of Jesus that we encounter in the gospel are trying to establish that he's the Messiah, the rescuer of God's people. In Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet had pointed out that some miracles, which never happen in the whole of the Old Testament, would be evidence of the arrival of the Messiah. And one of those miracles was, you've guessed it, healing people unable to walk. So healing this man is no ordinary miracle. But it's still a physical healing, right? So it has hard evidence, unlike the skepticism that we might carry about claiming to have forgiven sins. But which is easier? Well, let's ask the question a slightly different way. Which, which is easier to believe? Like as the man walks home carrying his mat, leaving behind Jesus with a hole in his roof, the evidence of the healing is strong. But where's the evidence of his forgiveness? Like Jesus doesn't give him a pin or a tattoo or a special handshake. He just says, kid, your sins are forgiven. And this man just has to trust that this is true. You see, forgiveness needs faith because there's nothing to see. And I think this is where religion sometimes wins, where religiosity with all of its rules, ladders, bars, and standards to reach, it, it's kind of more attractive to us. It gives us, it gives us some hoops to jump through, some proof maybe. And Jesus' forgiveness asks us for none of that. It just asks us to trust that we are forgiven. Forgiveness is an invitation not to box ticking, but to relationship. But is it easy? I kind of want to say no. Forgiveness might actually be easier to do, but hard to accept. Like, are you forgiven? Theologically, the answer is categorically yes, but do you feel like it? Have you let yourself off the hook like Jesus has? See, the fear and the anger and the hatred and the sense of injustice that drive us so often to rail against Jesus' forgiveness towards others can very easily be internalized when we try to accept forgiveness directed towards ourselves. We might know in our head that we're technically forgiven, but we struggle to trust that enough to actually feel that way. But to follow Jesus is to be involved in what Aaron Zimmerman calls a massive exercise in perpetual forgiveness. And if being Christ-like means that we have to be forgiving, then it also means that we must learn to be Christ-like to ourselves and accept the forgiveness that we are submersed in. Perhaps you need a little bit of grace for yourself. I wonder, though, if you notice what is potentially the real irreligious scandal in this story. Did you notice how the paralyzed man asked for forgiveness? Did you see how it, well, grab your Bible and see if you can notice how, how he never asks for anything. Like nothing at all. Because Jesus always forgives first. Before you ask, before you repent, before you even know that you need help, you were forgiven. Like we don't activate Christ's forgiveness. He moves first before we even get a word in. Like just let that sink in for you today. The forgiveness is the ground on which Christ's love stands. And it's all been done in advance. As David Zal writes, the good news is that nothing that needs to be done hasn't already been done. 
And as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29, God is not about to change his mind on that. And so we see the scandal at the heart of this strange story. As Jesus stands covered in the dust of his roof tiles, as the sun streams in through the hole in the ceiling, so everyone in the room is impacted by the forgiveness on offer. The man lying in the middle of the floor, the four men who brought him there, the religious leaders, the crowd, you, me, all of us forgiven before we even asked for it, before we even said a word. Because this forgiveness relies on Jesus and not us. So this scandal, this gospel, the good news, Jesus' forgiveness is profoundly irreligious. You can't earn it, it's for everyone, and you don't even need to ask for it. And yet we still want to try and earn it. We're like moths, kind of drawn to the flame, in that we get drawn to religiosity in all areas of our lives. Because maybe, just maybe, I can be a little more deserving. Robert Farrar Kappen helps me with this when he writes in this way. He says, Jesus does not come to see if we are good. He comes to disturb the caked conventions by which we pretend to be good. He doesn't come to see if we're sorry. He knows that our repentance isn't worth the hot air we put into it. He doesn't come to count anything. He cares not even a fig for the part of our record, good or bad. He comes only to forgive for free, for nothing, on no basis. We're too far gone to have a basis. We are saved gratis by grace. We do nothing. We deserve nothing. It is all absolutely and without qualification one huge, hilarious gift. Now we need to talk about forgiveness some more. And that's for another week. But just for a moment, imagine if we lived like this type of forgiveness was real in our beliefs and our actions. I wonder if the way this story ends would be what people would say today. Has anyone ever seen anything like this? So may his hilarious forgiveness and his grace and peace 